to, came to Brisbane to teach at QTC, but uh, we've left. We have two children. Our son is 30. Our daughter is uh, 27, uh, 26. Um, still not married. Oh well. Um, and they're both living back in the states. So we go back and forth between uh, the states and here in the last few years. Cool. And uh, up front today, if there's one thing that we can kind of come away from today with, challenged by. Uh, to learn to read the Bible really closely and really carefully. So we're going to tackle a passage that you all know well, but I'm going to try and break it open and, and encourage us to reread, rethink, look at things in a fresh way. Yeah, awesome. Uh, let me pray for you, and then uh, I'll hand over to you. Thanks. Heavenly Father, thanks so much that we can come together today. Um, Lord, uh, yeah, we pray that you would uh, speak to us through your word and through Doug. We pray that you'd challenge us and comfort us and encourage us, and we pray that through this experience um, our faith would grow and that we would, yeah, love you more because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ben, before you disappear, can you start handing these out? Now, what I've done is I've got a couple of handouts. I should have stapled this first thing that Ben is handing out to the second page, but actually I want to keep, I decided not to, I want to keep them separate because the, the first page, the first sheet has got questions I want us to talk about in the first session. How long this first session goes basically is, depends upon how much interaction I get from you. If you sit there quietly and say nothing, we're done in five minutes and we go to coffee. No, that's actually not a good idea. <laughs> um, the second section will have a separate sheet there. That's, uh, that'll be more for when I kind of lecture you. Doesn't sound right, but you know what I mean. Um, and I, the reason I'm not giving you that is because that would have the answers I'm going to give you on these questions later on. So I don't want you to know my answers. I want you to interact. I want you to tell me what you think. So, um, so if you see, the title I've given this is different to the title I think that you, um, that's advertised. doesn't much matter. This is like Genesis 1, the first three days. So we're looking at Genesis 1. And we're going to kind of narrow the focus, not just to Genesis 1, but the first three days, or the first, actually, 15 verses. In fact, we're going to read them. Um, Read those first, not 15 verses, 13 verses, I believe it is. Just, yep, just 13 verses. So we're going to kind of really spend some time digging into 13 verses. That, that's today. We, we can go beyond that if we want to. There's plenty of other things we can say. But that's going to be my primary focus. Uh, this is a part of the Bible that I, I know I love. <laughs> I once taught a, a whole semester on Genesis 1 to 3 except we only got through two chapters. <laughs> My point there is there's so many issues, so many interesting things uh, that hopefully you can sort of, we, can have, we can have fun today. Uh, I know this is a controversial part of the Bible, but I hope we just enjoy analysing it very closely and very carefully. Okay, let's just read through it. Then I'll start asking the questions and see if we can go into an interactive mode for the next I don't know, half an hour or so. Let's see how it works out. I'm reading from the ESV. What's the go-to Bible here? NIV. NIV. Right, that's fine. That's going to be close enough to... Which NIV? 2011 or 1984? Ooh. Okay, uh, I can do that. I think I wrote... Uh, give me a second. I'm going to go back to... Two, 2011. You're really up with a... Okay. 
what I produced here for myself were the this is I did this is the these these verses in ESV, NIV nineteen eighty four and NIV two thousand eleven in case you all had different um, versions which you might. Okay, I'm going to do the NIV 2011, which is pretty close actually uh, to the NIV 1984, the original and the best, and not too far away from the ESV. So uh, I might just make a couple of comments as we go along. Uh, first 13 verses, NIV. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is pretty well how everyone translates those that verse. Now the earth was formless and empty. ESV, now the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, uh, saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, then there was morning, the first day, or possibly even just one day. Verse 6, and this is where we might want to note the differences between the translations. And God said, let there be a vault, whatever that is, uh, between this waters to separate water from water. That's different, actually, to the NIV 1984. God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So we're going to tackle that one, vault. Or expanse, and if you have your ESV, also it has expanse. And those of you with a good old King James have firmament. Arguably the best translation, but never mind. So God made the this is verse seven. Now God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Uh, verse 9, this is day 3 now. And uh, God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, God speaks again on the third day. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit uh, with bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds and it was so uh, the land produced vegetation plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day so that's the um, I'll, I'll probably be operating more from the ESV this is what we use at college but there's not much difference between the translations. Okay, see in front of you a set of questions, uh, and hopefully this will be fairly interactive. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So what first question? This phrase, heavens and earth, what does it refer to? Be brave, sin boldly, go for it. Yeah, so world, the universe. Yeah, that's what, what it sounds like. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the land. In fact, most scholars say, yeah, that's basically, in the beginning, God created everything. Anyone want to take issue with that? 
Could be. Could be. That's, that's, a, that's a bit of a fly in the ointment, that one. Uh, opening up a different possibility. We'll come back to that one. Um, yeah, it's typically the, the, the dominant position. Pretty well every scholar says what you have here is what's called a merism. Two parts, two extremes. Heavens, earth, everything in between. Next question. Um, so, here, I'll just read it here. Does Genesis 1, 1, 1, describe the first act of creation? In other words, in the beginning, the first thing that God did was create the universe. Or does it function as a title or a summary for the rest of the chapter? In other words, something like, in the beginning, God created the universe, everything, and what follows is how he did it. Take a vote on this one. Think about it for a minute. First act of creation. Uh, Realise if you go that path, you're having stuff happening before day one. Or a title. A summary of what's about to happen. <laughs> Look closely. Think about it. Meditate on these things. Okay, you've had a few seconds of silence. Um, let's just take a vote first. Oh, it's election day, and we're in Australia, not America, so voting is compulsory. One of the greatest things that Australia does. Um, all those who think this is a description of God's first creative act, the first thing that God does, Put your hands up. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, we've got a solid group, but by the looks of it, not a majority. Who think we, we, this is a, a, a title? Okay, the majority, 60, 40, something like that, uh, a broader difference than what we'll have today, um, is going with a title. Why? Title people first. Isn't it a bit of a distraction, though? <laughs> my, my, my view is that... There's a third view coming. Yep. And, uh, and why? All good questions. Legitimate comeback. Well, I think we have to go through more. Yeah, we will go go through more. Go through more. That that sounds like a a, a vote for a minority party, <laughs> or maybe a protest vote or something. Okay, fair enough. Uh, those who want well, we're doing a title, aren't we? Those who think it's a title or summary, who actually have a commitment to that. Okay, summary. So this is so the rest of the chapter will describe God's creation of the universe, everything. Right, which means, anyone want to vote in favour of that? Another argument in favour of that one. Yeah. My question was just: Does creation include? 
Angels are probably not mentioned here, but it's a good question. Uh, in chapter 2, there's a reference to um, God created the heavens and all their hosts, which might be a reference to the angels, but here the angels are not mentioned. So we'll push the angels to the side for the moment. Um, for the title people, summary people, I'll ask this question. What, let's take the word create to mean what we all take to mean. Create something new. Create essentially out of nothing. So where, that means that what you will see somewhere in Genesis 1, a description of the creation of the heavens, which you will find where? Day 4, 4. Where do you find a description of the creation of the earth? Creation of the earth. Day three, it's revealed, but when does it come into existence? It doesn't speak of it, and that's what stopped me from picking the diagram. Ooh, so you... you... It says in two, the earth is about form and void. Where does it come from? It, that's, it's just there. So there's a, what I'm trying to get at here is, if you can understand where I'm going, is if 1-1 one, one is a description of what everything is about to happen, you would expect to see somewhere from verse 2 onwards a description of the creation of the earth. I don't see it. Okay, there's an issue there. Just treasure these things in your heart. Um, let's go to the first act of creation people, the minority. Uh, who, who wants to argue in favour of that one? Give it a shot. Yep. Right. So what you're saying is that that would explain why there's stuff. Before we, so for you, wouldn't this day one begin? That's a question too we'll have to come to. When is the beginning of day one? Sorry? He, he knows how we think. I hope he does. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we could answer this question though from, from the text. And I'll, I'll do it a bit later. So I'm just sort of just throwing things out here now. The question is when, is, when does day one begin? We'll come back to that one. Well, okay, go back to the observation is that uh, on day two, oh, sorry, in verse two, whenever it is, the earth and the sea, the deep, are already in existence, which is an argument in favour of in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, let's talk about the earth. That's an argument, if that makes sense, an argument in favour of verse 1 being a description of God's first creative act. Does that make sense? Of course, that gets interesting. If that's the case, and if day 1 does not begin until verse 3, and I'll argue for what that in a minute, um, well, then we have stuff being created before day 1, which may or may not be a problem. 
we're reading closely and we're making you think things. Okay, the, the most common view, by the way, is um, that it's a title. That's, that's probably the dominant view. Um, and it raises the question, where in the six creative days of Genesis 1 is there a description of the creation of the entire cosmos? Yes, day four, we have the creation of the, the celestial bodies. But is there a description of the creation of, creation of the land, the earth, I should say, uh, not even day three? So that's an interesting one. Uh, the, and if, it's, if Genesis 1, 1, the first act of creation... How can the creation, how can the universe be created in Genesis 1.1 and then the sun, moon and stars, the universe, be created again on day four? See, if, if you've said it's the first act of creation, in the beginning God created the heavens, but they're not created until day four. That's the problem with that view. Well, we'll get to the light. We haven't got to the light yet. <laughs> um, so you can see this. There's some interesting challenges here, aren't there? That's just the first verse. Let's go to the second verse. Now, the earth was without form and void, ESV. Uh, um, what have we got here? Formless and, and uh, empty or something like that. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Now, the earth was uh, without form and void or without form and empty. Would someone courageous come to the board and draw a picture of that. I'm guaranteed that these pens will work. That is a... What is that? It's a circle. Sphere, I assumed as much, yeah. It's a sphere. Anyone agree that it's just what's on the sphere? Nothing. Nothing. Just water. But it still has a form. That's a form. I'm I'm not saying you're wrong, I'm just I'm just being stroppy. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna play devil's advocate all the way through this. Anyone else want to have a, have another shot? I think I yeah, why not? I mean that's that's a good good one. <laughs> okay, a dot. What is that? A point with no dimension. A point with no dimension. In the beginning, God created a point with no dimensions. I love this. This is great. This is good. These are lots of different options. The singularity. I don't even know what the singularity is. Oh, okay. It's. No, I actually don't know. Something infinite. Okay. This is like what we had before the Big Bang. It does say the Earth was. So we we have. To, it's not the universe. It's just it's the Earth. I think you're right in the sense that what we're looking at here probably is the Earth, if that's what it means. Um, you can do that if you want to. <laughs> the word, yep. But this is now the earth was formless. When I do this, is this what I'm supposed to use with this? 
Let's see how it goes. Oh, it works nicely. Uh, what happens with this one, I find that when I've, I've done this one over the years with my students and it's a slightly perverse thing. A lot of them will do this. They'll take the sphere, but they'll kind of do it like this. A blobby ball of mud, something like that. Something that's spherical. It's the earth in, in inchoate, incomplete form, but at the same time just not formed, still in a, like a blob. I don't know whether it's right or not, but that's an interesting one. Okay, so that's an, what, what, is, uh, what does it look like? What does it mean to say that the earth is without form? You, know, you read that, we've read this, it's, this goes back to the King James, without form and void, it's been sitting there for centuries, and we go, oh, yes, without form. My challenge is, what does that mean? And it's not easy. Um, and what does it mean to say it's empty? Well, that's probably a little bit easier. Nothing on it. Um, why is it in this condition? Now, this is speculation because we're not told why it's in that condition. Why is it in whatever this condition is? Let's assume this is something like why is it in this condition? Yeah, that, that, the simple answer is well, it's got to start somewhere. This is just an, an, a what you have here is an incomplete, a, a sort of a first start of the initial stages of the, the creation of the earth. So that's probably the, the simplest answer. There are other more complex answers. So the, that's the, in, the initial condition of the earth. God created the earth, and this is what it was like in the beginning. Okay, um, next question. We're told here that uh, darkness, suddenly out of nowhere comes this statement, darkness was on the face of the deep. Uh, what is the deep? Where is the deep? What is it? The deep is watery, because you know that from what goes on. Because the the um, this um, what have we got here? And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, meaning the water of the deep. So it's it's the deep is. Also, sometimes called the abyss, it's it's not yet the seas because the seas have not been formed, and yet it is water. What is it? Where is it? Can't see the bottom. Ah, yep. I'm actually just trying to avoid giving my answer to these questions right now, intentionally. Um, Oh yeah, this is the, we're getting to a very classic answer here. That what we have here is a picture of chaos and disorder, which is a little kind of scary because that raises interesting questions. Why have we got chaos and disorder at the beginning of the story? Uh, the Greek or the Hebrews has the word that we translate. Deep. <laughs> and that's a pretty good translation. It's, uh, it's, I'll explain what I think it is a bit later. I don't want to give too much. <laughs> yeah. What, where's the deep in this picture? What is the deep and where is it? And where did it come from? 
Here's the other question. Where did it come from? Um, next question. If, you, if you're leaving this completely confused thus far, that's fine. I'm actually intentionally... Okay, a little perversely, I'm intentionally confusing you. By that I mean what I'm trying to do here is force you to look carefully at texts that we know too well and ask what's going on here, forcing us to read carefully. We're good evangelicals. This is the word of God. This is what we do with it. Um, so what does it mean to say the spirit, possibly the, even the, um, this is a little controversy, the wind of God, a wind from God or the spirit of God or even the breath of God, What's it doing hovering over the waters of the deep? Well, we, don't, we haven't yet figured out what the deep is nor where it is, so we might struggle to, to, um, to figure out what's going on with the Spirit. What this does tell us, though, that it's hovering above, above the waters of the deep, over the surface of the deep. It actually tells you the deep is not limitless. It has a surface. So there's a point at which this deep, you know, one argument might be, there's your blobby, unformed earth, and around it is the deep, maybe, and it's got a surface. Um, where's the Spirit of God? Why is it there? They're the kind of questions. I won't pr probe too far into that one. Um, just keep going, just throwing out questions, looking at the time. Okay. Uh, verses 3 to 5, I'm actually arguing this is where day 1 begins. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. He called the light, saw that light was good, and we've already read it, so I won't read it again. So why do I say that day 1 begins at verse 3 and not at verse 1? Yep, that's part of it. Look at that phrase. The, the change, meaning the, the rotation of the earth? Or? No, the, the, um, having form, okay. But why do we have to, why is this on day one? Let me give you a hint here. Notice it's very simple, I answered this one. Um, this is not a tricky one. Despite the others were, but this one's straightforward. Uh, how does this verse begin? Then look at every other time where you see, and God said, and that is the introduction to each of the days, which typically ends with, and there's morning and there's evening. So you've got this, this, this envelope structure, and God said, ending with you know, morning and evening thing. Uh, what's interesting, though, on day three, and God said occurs twice. On day six... And God said also occurs twice. We'll come back to why that's relevant. But that's, that and God said is the marker of the beginning of day one, which to me raises the questions about what, where we locate verses one and two in time. Right. Um, so God said, let there be light. What's the source of the light? Sun and stars. A problem with that? Not created till day four. Answer to that. Yeah, we have to sort of get into time, sort of weird time. There's an argument that this is actually the, the creation of the sun, 
but it's not revealed until day four. I, I, I just read this. I'm a pretty, pretty literal reader of this text. I'm actually arguably more literal than most people. I don't think the, the sun is created yet. That's day four. Oh, I stole my thunder. <laughs> that's what I'm asking. Yeah, that's an interesting answer, isn't it? Everyone like that one? It has potential. Sorry? Yeah, oh, we'll come to that. Yeah, you guys. Okay, you're jumping ahead of me. This is good. Um, what that means, though, there's an implication of that. Uh, this is a little controversial. You now have light coming from a source other than the sun. Does that say anything about whether this is a scientific account of creation or not? Yeah. See that you've run into an interesting problem there of fitting of squaring this with a modern account of creation, a modern scientific account, which says what well, light comes from the sun or the celestial stars. But here you have in this story. If you're right, I'm not saying you are, light coming from a source that, that is, cannot be seen, comes from an invisible source, a spiritual source. You're not in Kansas, Toto. It might, doesn't. I'm not. I'm not concerned by it. But what's the other interesting thing too is why is this? If God is light, why does only this light suddenly appear now? Why? And in fact, if you go back to verse two, because he was hovering above the fall, he's not in it yet. Okay. Yeah. But up until this point, it appears there's just darkness, and yet God is light. Okay. Ricky Gervais. No, I'm not going to. I'll keep him out, out of this. He's got a skit about this where it's, it's moderately blasphemous. It's, okay, it's terrible. But he does talk about how it's amazing. God created the heavens and the earth and he did it in the dark. It's a joke. Okay. Um, so, what's the source of the light? Well, um, and the next question does, it say that, does this verse say that the light was created? No, it doesn't quite say that. It could mean that. When God says, let there be light, it could mean light is created, brought into existence, or it could mean something else. I'll try and unpack. Oh, it makes it solid. It makes it pretty real. It gives it an identity. Um, okay, verse 2, day 2. We're not even... We're good, we're in discussion time. Uh, day 2, verses 6 to 8, God said, let there be an expanse, let there be a vault, um, whatever word you want to use, and let it separate waters from waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse, or the vault, from the waters that were above it. Okay, here's a picture. So waters, wherever it is, waters of the deep probably, and what happens here is a thing... I'll give you a Hebrew word here, and I'll use it a couple of times through the... It's the Hebrew word, I'll give it to you in English, rakia. 
rakia. Uh, and this is the word that's being translated as vault, expanse, dome, various words like that. Um, so what's happening here is this vault, expanse thing is created. And what all it's doing here is separating water. It's just sitting there, separating water that's above it from water that's below it. That's all it's doing. So what is the expanse vault? You can choose, depending upon what, how you want to answer this question, you can pick either word. What is it and where is it? That thing, yeah, that big hemisphere that's above us. Yes. Uh, think of the word dome. Dome might be better than vault. It's a little bit clearer to us because vault, I think you've just picked up, it's got different meanings. Uh, big dome. But if it's an expanse, what does an expanse might mean? Yeah, so what, what you might have here, is it, is the rakia a big dome or is it the space between here and the sky? Well, of course, we're only on the land. We don't know what's underneath us in this story. Well, you're assuming that the perspective of, see, what we're all doing here is we're all assuming around earth aren't we because everyone here either was alive or born after say the apollo space program what i'm not getting it we've all seen the picture of the blue marble we all have we even those of us who grew up in my age before the space program we had these things we'd spin around in the classroom called globes but our perspective is is therefore the world is spherical Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's proved, it's been known since ancient times. My question that was going to be is, though from the, the, I'm not saying that the author doesn't know that, but the perspective from which he writes, it's an agrarian perspective, it's an on-the-ground perspective, it's a from-the-ground-looking-up perspective. <coughs> yeah, yeah. But not necessarily a scientific view, if I can put it that way, um, looking from the ground, looking up. Um, yep. Yes, that kind of works. I'll, I'll come back to that one as we go. Um, where was I? <laughs> so the question we're going to ask is, is it something solid? Is it the space? What is the expanse? What is the vault? Dome? What's it doing? And next question is, if there's waters above it, what are the waters above this expanse? Whether you call it the space between here and there or the a canopy of a vault, what are, there's water above it in this story. Where is it? Which tempts me to ask, why is the sky blue? 
That's not in my questions here. Um, is it space or is it something solid? See, if I said, well, is the sky solid? Is this sky we see above us solid? You'd all say no, because you know it goes on forever. Well, until the end of the universe. But is that the way the author is conceiving it? Is he conceiving it perhaps? Is he conceiving it something, something solid? He's looking beyond the rain clouds, I think. This dome, just go out and look. Not sunny today, but it's usually nice, light, light blue. And then at night, the lights are turned off and it goes dark blue. Um, so the question here is, um, is whether the Hebrew word rakia refers to something solid, vault, dome, or even that good old King James word, firmament, from the Latin firmamentum, meaning something that's firm, solid. Or is it the space between the earth and the sky? Interesting, this a little verse here, I'll probably come back to this one, is Ezekiel 1.22. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, or the likeness of, of a vault, uh, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads, or the NIV, similar kind of, something that looked like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Is that perceiving this, can this canopy, this firmament, this rakia, it's almost crystalline. Uh, next question. What's missing from the account of what God does on day two? I'm asking you to find something that's not there. Can you find what is not there? And God said it was good. It's not there. Next question. Why? Hasn't finished. Doesn't say it's bad. No, this is not bad. It's not called good. Because it's not finished. It's an interesting answer. That's happened on day one. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's good. God sees that and that's good. Day one is good. Day two, I'll call this... It's silence. There's, for some reason, it doesn't call, get called good. Later, uh, translations actually stick that in there um, because they're troubled by the absence of that, the, the absence of what is called the approbation formula or the approval formula, as it's called. God saw or God said that it was good. It's just not there. And it's a really interesting question. We're, paying, we're reading carefully. We're paying attention even to gaps and silences, and we're going to try. I'm going to try and address that question. It's a, it's, it ha, there's already an answer that's been given, and a lot of scholars agree with this one. It, the silence is there because this is an, an incomplete action. We'll see. Okay, uh, day day three. God said, uh, "Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let dry ground appear, dry land appear." And it was so. And God called the dry land Earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. He said that was good. And the next thing happens, it says, notice day three, God does two things. Uh, the land is made dry, and then it's made fruitful. Let the earth sprout vegetation. Uh, actually, two types of plants here uh, is one that uh, the plants yielding seed are grasses, things that sow their own seed, literally. And the other thing is uh, kind of fruit trees. Read it there. Um, 
plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. This is stuff that grows without human intervention. This is uncultivated growth. That's important because this is stuff that grows without humans because humans are not yet created. Okay, what's different about this day? Well, I'll answer that question is uh, note the repetition of and God said both here and in day six. This is a day unlike the other days, unlike the other days except day six, in which God speaks twice, acts twice. Now, what signal does that send you? I'll tell you. It's important. There's something then significant about day three and day six. Don't forget we have six days, but actually we have two panels of three days. I'll, try, I'll do a drawing at the end, trying to show how this works. A panel of three days that moves towards the double action of God on day three where the land is made dry and then fruitful, hold that thought. And then on days four to six, a double action there where God creates the animals to occupy the land and humans to occupy the land. So those two panels hold that thought. Now, what happens on day three to the waters that are above the vault? Well, that's below the vault. That, that's below the vault. They're all pulled. There's, there's water, don't forget, there's water above and below, and the water below is now pulled to one place, form the seas, leaving dry land. What does it say about the water that's above the, the, the rakia? Nothing. Still there. This is going to become relevant when I start drawing connections between this story and the flood story. Uh, verses 9 and 10 describe the... Cre Do they describe the creation of dry land or the earth? Uh, no, I say, let dry land appear, verse 9. means that the land already exists. It's already there. All that's happening now is that the waters of the deep, the waters of the deep have been pulled away to now reveal it as dry ground. Dry land. But land is not created here. Earth is not created here. It's revealed. And that are my set of questions that hopefully have left you hopefully intrigued. Now, what we'll take a break now. Um, what I'll do in the second half is I'm going to give you my own interpretation, which is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. Um, but hopefully it's intended to explain and answer as many of these questions as I've posed to you. Okay, time for you to ask me some questions. Yes. Yeah, I actually don't think it's nebulous. In fact, I think one of the things that will be really helpful is stop being moderns. It's not hard for us to, to take uh, an ancient worldview. This is, don't forget, this is a text that's written to people, uh, well, okay, uh, 1500 BC. You've got to take that into account. Uh, our problem is that we assume the Bible's written straight to us. It's not. It is the word of God to us. But we are looking over the shoulder of ancient readers and we do have to ask, what would they, how would they have understood this? We hear words like earth and so forth and we automatically go to planet earth. Because that also, the fact that we go to planet earth is not just because we perceive the earth as a, as a sphere, as a globe, but also because we're caught up by the whole de debate about origins. 
that big debate out there about Big Bang and the origins, that is for us the controlling question. Where does the universe come from? Where does the earth come from? All those questions, they sort of put in our mind, they're all modern scientific questions, great questions, important questions. Don't, do not hear anything I'm saying today to be in any way um, an anti-science perspective. All I'm saying is maybe the ancients, the ancients writer, Moses probably, What's the most important thing for him? To address the question of ultimate origins of the universe, or has he he's got a different set of questions that he's regarding as important? And remember, too, that his perspective, one of the big questions for the ancient people is, is real simple. It's not like, where did the earth come from? But is my land going to be productive? And will I have enough people to work the land? They're the pressing questions. They're the questions that... Just think of the farmers out there, out there in Queensland. Think of their questions. Oh, drought, unproductive land, or worse, a great flood coming along. You can, I mean, that's, that's out there in Queensland. Typical Australia, either you have a drought or the drought is this great flood and wipes all out all your cattle. And then the question of do we have the people to work the land? They're the kind of, they're, they're agrarian questions. And if you put yourself into that mindset, you're going to have, I think, a better shot at, at kind of getting at what this passage and indeed all of Genesis is about. Another coffee time? Come back and then I'll have a shot at sort of confusing you. Less, hopefully. Thanks. Where are you? Come and make coffee. Oh, there he is. There are two. There are two um, handouts coming around. The one with the writing on it actually goes with the first page, so you can see it's pages three and four. You can staple them or whatever to page one and two. I just wanted to keep them separate, mainly because I just didn't want you to see where I'm going until I actually go there. Uh, the the second handout are pictures, which are just for fun. Okay. Um, I'm calling this section, rereading Genesis 1, 1 to 13, those first three days, um, through ancient eyes. Here are a couple of introductory comments, a few disclaimers to come now. Um, what I'm going to do now, and this will probably take uh, maybe more than 45 minutes, but that's okay, we've got plenty of time. Uh, I'm going to take you through my interpretation of Genesis 1. This is not what everyone else says, this is just me, sorry. Um, and I'm going to offer it to you as a different interpretation to the one that, ones that you are probably used to. So I will not be surprised or disappointed if you say, thanks, but no thanks. That's fine. Um, that's, I mean, <laughs> this is my job as a teacher, to give, convince people that I'm right, but occasionally people agree with me. Um, so my interpretation assumes that it's, uh, what we're reading is an ancient account of origins, and therefore we will run a risk if we try to squeeze it to fit modern scientific categories of thought, I also believe that this chapter uh, offers a highly theological account of creation that at some basic level is actually going to challenge this, uh, the materialist and secular worldview that undergirds much of much discussions of origins. So 
But I think there's actually some serious challenges to our materialist worldview, secular worldview coming up here. Now, I hope that um, while my interpretation of Genesis 1 might differ from what you're used to, I, I hope, though, you see that I'm trying to, to, to... This interpretation is intended to answer some of the difficult questions that the text itself raises. I'm not actually thinking about scientific questions here. They're off to the side. I'm not a scientist. You'll love this. The last class I did in science was in 1971. And when I tell young people that, they go, do you realise what's happened in science since 1971? I go, no. That's the whole point. Uh, I am not pretending to be a scientist. I think science is great, modern science is incredible things. I'm not anti-science. I'm just working with the text. Um, and I'm not worrying about how... I'm reading it on its own terms and not worrying how it fits with modern science. So try and keep those questions off to the side and maybe uh, you can travel with me a bit further if that's the case. I'm also not going to get into Genesis 2 and 3 as much as you would like me to because there are enough problems where we are, let alone getting into those chapters. Um, I'm also going to just make a lot of assertions and not get into a detailed defence of my uh, interpretation. I've done that in academic presentations of what I'm doing, so it's going to be, I'm going to gloss over some of the more... I'm saving you uh, having to hear detailed arguments about Hebrew syntax. Be thankful for that. Um, okay, so Genesis 1.1, you can see my heading there, God created heaven and the land. So let's get started by uh, going back to verse 1 again, the ESV, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, same as the NIV. Uh, first, a comment on this phrase, the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word translated heavens, which you all know as the sky, um, can also be translated heaven. There's a, uh, what they call a bivalence. It's the heavens, but also the place where God dwells. Now, we go, well, they're two separate realms. And actually, for the ancients, they're, kind of, they're actually connected. But they are two different concepts. Another way of getting at both the difference and the similarity of these, these two concepts is that Shemayim, the Hebrew word, can refer to what is sometimes referred to as the upper heavens, the heaven of heavens. You'll hear that phrase in the Bible. That's where God dwells. And then the lower heavens, which can be, which is the sky, the stars, moon, sun, moon, sorry, sun, moon, and stars. Uh, in other words, the semantic range, the range of meanings of this word is uh, wide enough to refer not only to the heavens, the sky, the visible heavenly realm, but also to heaven, singular, the invisible dwelling place of God and the angels as well. The other word that goes alongside heaven or heavens is earth. Now, when you hear that word, you cannot help but think about planet earth. Uh, because of the globes, because of a whole lot of reasons. But actually, that's, I think, not the perspective of the author of Genesis. As I said a few minutes ago, his is an on-ground perspective. It's also an agrarian perspective, all the issues I raised a little earlier. He and his audience were much more interested in questions of the fertility and productivity of the land they lived on. Now, those quick comments are background to this observation. The Hebrew word ereds, which has been translated as earth, can also have a narrower meaning, meaning just land, understood as the place where humanity and the animals will come to inhabit. I'm not, I'm not particularly bent out of shape by the translation of earth, but I, I just don't want us to think about the earth as the globe. The focus is much more on land, land set in opposition to the seas, 
the place on earth where humanity dwells. I think if you get that perspective, that will help you with this passage as well. So here's my interpretation of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, no, not the universe. That will happen more or less on day four. But in the beginning, God created two distinct and separate places or locations. Heaven, a dwelling place for himself and the angels as well eventually. And the land, the realm that will ultimately be occupied by humanity and the animals. In the beginning, God created a place for himself to dwell. How does that work? Well, in the ancient world, that's pretty typical. King, uh, gods would exist, but then they would build a palace for themselves. That is what God has done here. God has existed from ever, but here the story tells us he actually has a dwelling place called heaven and also uh, the place where humanity has dwelled. That humanity will dwell. I also want to suggest that this is God's first creative act. That's where I land on that one. Which means that he creates these two realms, heaven and the land, before the beginning of the first day of the week of Genesis 1. So this time before day 1. Uh, if you think that's particularly problematic, and I can understand why you might think that, is then it's worth noticing that in Genesis 1.5, the phrase translated by the ESV, there was morning, there was evening, the first day. The Hebrew word there is echad, which could mean either first or one. Usually it just means one. So a legitimate way of translating that verse is there was evening, there was morning, one day. Yes, it's the first day of the week, but it's, is it necessarily the first day of time? No, not necessarily. Um, simply the first, it's the first day of, a, of the seven-day week described in chapter 1. So what you've got then, here's how the story begins. And no more round earths because we're going to adopt an on-earth perspective. There's our hook there. Uh, in the beginning, God created the land. There it is. Land. Yes, it's the earth, but the focus is on land. And then up here, God created a home for himself, heaven. Now, how do you represent heaven like that? It's impossible, but... There we go. Can you all see that? It's not all that tricky. Okay. Now, that should not surprise you once you realise that you're, we're not reading a modern scientific account of creation. But what we're given here, this is really important. What we often do with Genesis 1 is we, we come at it with a question. What is the biblical doctrine of creation? And we go to Genesis 1 and we cut it off from the rest of the Bible. Well, Genesis 1 to 3, and we cut it off from the rest of the Bible. No, Genesis 1 is the introduction to a story. It's the first chapter in a story of the book of Genesis, of the Pentateuch, of the whole Bible. It has a very, very crucial introductory role. It's in a story. It's not the biblical doctrine of creation. So that's important. Where am I? Because what it's telling us is that this story that's about to follow, well, what we know about reading the rest of the Bible is that it's going to be a story of the relationship between God and his creation. And specifically, in a more focused way, it's going to be the story of the relationship between God and humanity. Now, modern science wants to explain the origins of the universe. The Old Testament is interested in a different set of questions, primarily. 
This is why, in my opinion, the story doesn't begin with the creation of the whole cosmos. Um, as I said, I don't think that kind of really happens until day four with the creation of the sun, moon and stars. What this suggests is that the question that modern science is most interested in, the Big Bang, the origins of the universe, is only of secondary interest to the author of Genesis 1. But by beginning his story, his history, with a brief account of the creation of heaven and land, the author is sending an, a message to his readers and to us, sending us the message that what follows in Genesis in the Pentateuch, and indeed in the whole Bible, the rest of the Bible, will be the story of the relationship between God and humanity. In other words, between the inhabitants of these two realms. This is setting us up for the Bible and all that's going. The story of the relationship between God and humanity, the, the inhabitants of these two realms, heaven and earth, or perhaps more accurately, the relationship between heaven and those who inhabit the land. Just to make this point about this being a non-scientific account of creation, if my interpretation is correct, then Genesis 1 has just described, 1 1, has described the creation of a real but invisible realm. Where's heaven? If I ask you, where is it? Answer that from a modern scientific point of view. The answer is, you got to, well, it's in a parallel universe. This is the problem with modern science. It cannot describe for you, speak about, tell you where heaven is. Theologically, that's a problem. That's going to show you the limitations of modern science for answering these kind of metaphysical, beyond the physical questions. But Genesis 1 says, oh, by the way, this is a really risky thing. In the beginning, God created a really important place that you can't see. That's not how I'd open a book if I was sort of trying to convince people, but that's a courageous opening to the account of creation. So from the, from the perspective of modern science, the verse says that in the beginning, God created a place that is undetectable even to the most powerful telescopes, a place that is not part of the material universe. Again, if I'm correct, this should caution us moderns against seeking to make the following chapter cohere neatly with scientific explanations of the origins of the earth and the universe. Science is speaking one way, the Bible's speaking another way. Let me put this another way. Genesis 1.1 sets up a story whose perspective on the universe is not scientific. Rather, it's relational, theological, otherworldly. I can't even think of all the right words I want to use here, but not scientific. Okay, Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.2. Um, now the earth was without form and void of um, form, without form and empty. But the focus, if I'm right, is on land rather than on planet Earth. So maybe this verse is not talking about a formless, blobby, mud ball or something, or rather void planet, whatever these words mean. So let's come at this in a fresh way. Verse 2, uh, again, some more Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew words translated formless and void, I'll give them these to you in, uh, in transliteration, are tohu, Wabohu, one Hebrew word, that word means and. So these two words, tohu and bohu, great words. Um, translated by the traditions of interpretation, formless and void or empty. 
Um, but the problem is, and you can track this one down with your Hebrew Bibles, is that in the rest of the Old Testament, tohu refers to a wilderness, a desert, a place where nothing grows. In other words, simply land that's desolate. Um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. He found him, God found Israel out in the wilderness in a desert land and in the howling tohu, the howling wasteland in the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him and so forth. But it's a picture of the desert, the wilderness, outback Australia. Um, the other word, bohu, and I won't go into all the technical stuff because that would take us into Arabic and all sorts of fun things. Uh, bohu refers to land that's uninhabited, uh, void in the sense of empty of population. And this interpretation of these two words fits nicely with what precedes this verse, or more importantly, with what follows. Um, let me do it this way. Verse 1, in the beginning God created heaven and land. Verse 2, now let's talk about the land. Let's focus on the land. And at the beginning, that land was desolate and uninhabited. Land where nothing grows, land where no one lives, if you want to do it this way, a deserted desert. But watch where the story goes. Now, it's well known that the six working days, if I can put it that way, of Genesis 1 can be divided into three panels. I'm going to have to wipe out heaven and earth right now for this one. Sorry about that. Three panels. Throw that there. Oops. Um... Oh, I love that. Uh, day one, day two, day three, two creative acts. Got 3A and 3B. Day four, day five, day six, also two creative acts. So 6A and 6B. Um, 6B, that is. Now, here's the land. Let's just... Press forward with this. I'm going to make a couple of comments here. Watch where the story goes. We've already noted that God speaks twice on day three, but he also speaks twice on day six. So what happens on those two days? Well, on day three, God causes the water to be removed. He puts the... Uh, yeah, he pulls all the... Do you know what? Better than doing that. I'll do, go back to my diagram. I shouldn't have wiped it out. You can see, though, here's your panels. Um, day three is what we're going to talk about here in day six. Let me wipe this out and draw a picture. What we've got, go back to the drawing I had here earlier, which I foolishly wiped out. Heaven up there, land down here. But on day three, I'll come back to this later on, is it's covered in water. The land is covered in water. What God does first act on day three, he pulls the water to one place, calls them sea, what's left is dry land, and then that's day three, part A, and then it happens on day three, part B. Stuff starts to grow. So you've got fruitful land. Okay, why is that relevant? Because... Um, We've got grain-producing plants, fruit trees. In other words, what we've got here is a complete reversal of the desolation of the original condition of humanity, or the, sorry, original condition of the land. 
It was tohu. It was desolate. That's how the story begins. Oops. And look where it begins. Look where it ends on day three. But also, verse two says it was uninhabited. Uninhabited. Empty. And look where it ends up. Well, it ends up with this picture here. With humans, oh, I better throw in some lions and tigers and bears as well. So now, the uninhabited bohu has now turned into an inhabited realm. So, um, first we have the complete reversal of the desolation, the tohu of verse 2, and then on days 4 to 6 reach their goal with the creation first of animals and then of humans, and they're told to be fruitful, multiple, and fill this once uninhabited land. In other words, what you have then is a, complete, is a reversal of the emptiness of the uninhabited land. This translating verse 2, verse two is, in the beginning the land was desolate and empty, makes perfect sense of all that follows. The dealing with the problem of the desolation and dealing with the problem of the emptiness. Interestingly, those two themes crop up through the rest of Genesis. Think about Genesis 1, Genesis 2. God creates Adam and places him in a special fruitful land, the Garden of Eden. And then he gives him Eve so they can reproduce and be fruitful. Same kind of two themes. When you think about the story of Abraham, the great covenant with Abraham, what are the two great promises made to Abraham? I will give you land, the land of Canaan, the land flowing of milk and honey, the fruitful land, and I will give you seed, descendants, a people to occupy that land. So that theme that you have there, the reversal of desolation to fruitfulness, of uninhabited land to inhabited land, those two themes are picked up and continued through the whole of Genesis. Indeed, that's the story of the Bible. That God is creating a people to occupy a fruitful land. Well, it's the new heavens and the new earth. So these themes just keep going from Genesis 1-2 all through the Bible. So, now the land was desolate and empty, not formless and void. Well, Next thing we learn, um, verse 2, also refers to a body of water referred to as the deep. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, this is weird. This explains actually why the land was desolate and uninhabited because it was covered by a vast ocean, the deep. Now, at this point, I know what you're going to say. How could land that's overwhelmed by water be likened to a desert? Well, what the water does is render it, nothing grows. Maybe seaweed, but nothing's, nothing useful. And that's why it's uninhabited, because it's covered by this vast uh, cosmic ocean, if you like. You're scratching your head saying, oh, I'm not buying that. Okay, let's, let's allow now the flood story to help inform us. It's often been noted the account of the flood in Genesis 6 to 9 is a story of uncreation followed by recreation. There's the land, lovely, fruitful land. What does the flood do? 
It covers the earth and takes us back to the conditions that existed at the beginning of creation. I'll go back to drawing my picture again. Here's how where we were at the beginning of creation. Land that is desolate, but land that is covered by this vast ocean, the deep, the abyss, um, various words for it, or simply the seas. Uh, that's why nothing's growing there. That's Genesis 1, verse 2. But also, that's the conditions that happen with the flood. It turns the earth back to that pre-creation state, covered by the earth, and we're told everything that lives is wiped out. Nothing grows, nothing, no one lives there. Of course, it's covered by a flood. So the flood returns the land to the same condition described in Genesis 1-2, covered by the waters of the deep, but then notice the parallels between the two stories. In both Genesis 1 and in the flood narrative, the waters of the deep are first removed from the land to reveal dry land. But the goal of each story is not reached until the dry land has become verdant, fruitful land. Interestingly, this explains why Noah doesn't leave the ark to fill the earth and in so doing, echo day six. This is a recreation story. He eventually, the ark opens up, they come out and they repopulate the earth, day six. But before they do that, they have to wait not until the earth is merely dry, but also because we've got to wait until it's producing vegetation again. How does he know that the earth is producing vegetation again? Because he sends out the bird, and what does the bird come back with? Leaf. Kind of dumb bit of information, but really important. Telling you that the land is now, we're back to day three. Dry land, fruitful land, vegetation is there again, which now allows us to repopulate the earth. See the parallels between these two stories? We'll come back to them. And the flood story is actually is a retold creation story. Very helpful, they'll be mutually interpretive stories. Um, before we move on to the next verse, I... Um, just want to kind of note here that Genesis 1 does not appear to describe the creation of the deep. Heaven and earth are created, or heaven and the land are created, but at the beginning of the story, the deep's just there. Just there. Located between heaven and heaven and the land. Just there. Now, that's a little disturbing. The good news is that elsewhere in Scripture, notably in Job 38, 38 uh, through to um, Job 38, 8 to 11, we have a description of probably of the, of the creation of, uh, the, of the deep, uh, where it's actually likened to a, a child coming out of the womb. Very interesting language there. But So we do have elsewhere in Job 38 and probably in Psalm 4 descriptions of the creation of the deep. But here in Genesis 1, it's just there. Um, so that's the picture we have. I'll do this as Genesis 1, 2. Oh, one more thing. Um, well, there's darkness up here as well. The Spirit of God is hovering up here. I don't know how to draw that without sort of violating various theological... I'll just do it. It's, an, it's a kind of an avian image, a bird image, hovering, going back and forth. In this realm... 
above the surface of the deep, but this darkness up here, which is a little kind of slightly weird. I'll come back to that issue there. Um, okay, so the, now get to Genesis 1, verses 3 to 5, day 1, let there be light. We've already picked this one up. In our early discussion, I asked what's the source of the light. Various answers have been proposed. But I want to suggest this is the decidedly non-scientific and thoroughly theological answer that it is a light that emanates from the divine abode, from heaven. And the source of that light, as some of you picked up earlier, is none other than God himself. And more specifically, his, love this word, his effulgence. Okay, his radiant glory. His splendor. Um, that is, there's many, many verses in the Bible that describe God in terms of, of uh, brilliant light. Um, think of Ezekiel's vision of the throne room of God, like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud in the, on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. So brightness all around. What that means is that the light that lights the world initially is the radiance of God's glory. Now, if you, if you can hear John's gospel has coming to your mind, if you hear, hear Revelation coming to your mind now, but of course this is not scientific. The whole idea that the light that lights the world is not the sun, moon and stars yet. It's God's glory. There's some rich theology there. Uh, which is interesting, by the way, when you get to the new creation, what happens to the sun, moon, and stars? They are no more. Why? Because God is their light. That's where, there's a picture here of where the whole story is going. So is light created? I also ask whether verse 3 describes the creation of light. In other words, light coming into existence for the first time. And I think the answer to that one is No. Let me explain by going back to verse 2. When what we are, there we learned that at the beginning the land was covered by that vast ocean known as the deep. But it's not a limitless, limitless ocean. It has a surface and above it the Spirit of God was hovering as I tried to picture there. The presence of the divine Spirit or the wind or the breath of God, pictures of, of this, I don't know, the Spirit of God, suggests that the realm above the deep was part of or more likely near the divine realm. There's some speculation I'm doing here. Um, that, of course, raises the question, if this is the spirit of God in this realm up here, and if God is the source of light, how can it be dark? You see there's a bit of an awkwardness there. I'm arguing this is happening in the divine realm or near where God's abode, something like that. So how can you have darkness when God is light? Well, to begin to answer that question, we have to understand that the brilliantly glorious God, the one who, according to 1 Timothy, dwells in unapproachable light, all this language, often veils himself in darkness. I'll give you one example of a number. Psalm 18 uses the imagery of fire and light to depict God. Fire from his mouth devoured. Glowing coals blaze from him. It's sort of classic you know, brightness, fire imagery. Yet his glory is also hidden behind darkness. Verse 9 of Psalm 18. A dark cloud was under his feet. Verse 9. And he'd made darkness his cloak. A canopy around him. Dark storm clouds. So here's God at light, but he veils himself as he often does in dark clouds. 
uh, canopy of clouds, darkness, things like that. And then finally in, in this psalm, his radiance begins to break through the gloom. This is verse um, 12. From his bright, the brightness of his presence, hail and burning coals broke through the clouds. This picture here of brightness veiled in clouds, veiled in darkness. Something similar, I think, is going on in chapter 1, verse 3 of Genesis, although in a much less dramatic way. Initially, in verse 2, God's glory, God's brilliance, his radiance, is veiled in darkness. But when he says, let there be light, what I'm going to suggest to you here, light is not created, that light is not created, rather he unveils his glory, which gives light to the world. Let there be light, and the curtain is pulled back. The darkness is removed, as, this, as for the first time, as it were, this, this brightness this emanates out from, from the heaven. The light that illumines, that illumines the, the cosmos, therefore, is the glory of God emanating from heaven, and the celestial luminaries, the lights of day four, are in some way refractions, perhaps, of that light. Um, and the alternation between light and darkness, the alternation that brings day and night into existence in verse 3, is ultimately the act of God revealing and, and then veiling the light of his glory. The alternation between light and darkness is, in these first few days, is God uncovering his glory, hiding his glory, this, this act of doing that. That's a little speculative. I know, I know that's me trying to make sense of the, of the elements in this story. Day 2. Uh, in our opening discussion, uh, let there be a rakia. Expanse, vault, firmament, what is it? In our opening discussion, we saw that there is a fair amount of divergence among the English translations when it comes to translating this Hebrew word rakia. Uh, is it an expanse or a vault, a dome? Uh, is firmament, the good old King James, the best translation? Uh, the ESV with expanse is a little bit vague, isn't it? Is it... The, light, the, the sky spread out, expanded out, or is it the space between here and uh, here in the sky? Um, there's a debate over that. Now, without argument, sorry, can't go into all of this, let me say that I interpret the rakia as a solid or firm barrier, a firm ament, in effect, a vault or a dome, that on day two is simply placed in the middle of the waters of the great deep. So on day two, this firmament is simply put in the middle. I'm going to cheat a little bit by doing it this way, just to make it a bit easier. Uh, I'm going to draw it as a dome. But right now, all it's doing on day two, it just sits in the middle of the water, separating water above from water below, more or less. Um, and in the following verses, verses 9 and 10, what happens is the waters below the firmament are gathered into one place to form the seas. And when that occurs, the land that up until this point has been inundated is revealed as dry land. I've already drawn this picture. I'll do it again. So what you have here now is this picture. All drawn, those waters drawn to one place and now dry land appears. Above the land, um, and of course on day three, stuff starts to grow. Uh, so above the land, that means we have the rakia, this solid translucent dome, holding back this vast ocean. There you go. No, that's not right. 
I know. But it's not a scientific description. But it kind of works. As I said, look up there. The sky is this water above us, held up by this translucent dome. And then the light shines through it. It's nice light blue during the day. But when the light is turned off, the heavenly light is turned off, as it were, God veils his glory. Then it goes a dark blue. Now, that's a, it's a picturesque way of talking about it. So above the land, we've got the rakia, the solid translucent dome, holding aloft the waters of the deep, preventing them from flooding the lands. The problem is, gee, that's a bit dangerous, isn't it? You've got this, this dome holding back the waters of the deep. Uh, but there they are. There it is. The rakia's job is to prevent the, earth, the waters from flooding in and returning the earth to its original state of desolation and uninhabitedness. And then, of course, what happens on day four, jumping ahead, I won't actually go there, God puts into this rakia the lights and so forth. Oh, I guess I could put the moon in there as well. Um, they're actually placed in the rakia, in the, in the firmament. Now, I said the function of the firmament is to hold back the waters of the deep, the cosmic sea. But listen to what happens when God judges the world with a flood. We're back to the flood story now. Yes, the land is inundated by rain. It's regular rain happening. But that's not enough to flood the whole earth. So we're also told in Genesis 7-1 that all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. What that's telling us is that actually this water goes underneath. Um, this is not in Genesis 1 and, and water gushes up from underneath but we're also told uh, that the windows or the floodgates of the heavens of the rakia of the firmament were opened what that tells you there are openings here there are floodgates and the flood is not just a lot of rain but it's also the inbreaking of the great deep into our world. It is the undoing of creation. There's, there's a big debate. Was it a local flood or was it a global flood? It's actually bigger than that. It's a cosmic flood. Now, don't ask me what, what the historical reality is behind it. The way it's presented is it is the undoing of creation. It's, it's, your flood is not big enough, is the point, no matter what your view is. Um, so... Um, the flood erupts from below the earth while the water from the great deep that's held above pours in through the windows, the floodgates of that firmament to return the earth, as I said earlier, to its uh, original condition. By the way, interpreting the firmament as a solid dome that holds back the deep may help explain the symbolism of the rainbow. This is, this is uh, Genesis 9, 12 and 13. The Lord says, This is the sign of the covenant I made between me and you that every living creature that is within you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud that it may be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It's a covenant with the earth, with the land actually. What is the context of that covenant that God makes with the land? Genesis 9, 11. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood those waters there, and never again uh, shall the flood destroy all flesh. In other words, the windows of the heavens will remain shut. Never again will there be any breaks, any openings in the dome that holds back the waters of the deep. In other words, this is what's promised. Now, 
No more breaks in the deep. Which means, perhaps, that the hemispherical rainbow is a picture of what is covenantally promised. An unbroken firmament, a dome with its windows closed, holding back the waters of the cosmic sea and preventing them from breaking into out of its allotted space. The rainbow is a picture of what's promised. Can't prove that one, but that's an interesting one, isn't it? Okay, day two. Why does God not pronounce day two good? Again, uh, I drew your attention to that issue. Uh, it's the one day when God does not declare the work that he's performed to be good. Now, we're left wondering why that is the case. One common explanation is that this is a day that describes an incomplete action. The lady at the front brought that one to our attention. That's, that's a good classic argument. It's, it's a day which is simply a step, a movement, a step in the movement towards the revelation of dry land on day three. So it's an incomplete action. Although I think that's pretty significant. You put the ferment in the middle of the waters. But, but I do wonder, is another explanation possible? And bear with me on this one. Although we're at the beginning of the Old Testament, let's go to the end of the New Testament and maybe you can help us uh, come up with a viable way of accounting for the text's silence here. So let's head over to Revelation 21. That chapter describes two crucial elements in God's ultimate plan for creation. First, in Revelation 21.1, someone want to read 21.1 for me? Interesting. The sea is certainly that, but arguably the deep as well. The sea is gone. The deep is gone. Um, so that's the first thing we're told. Um, next thing in the next verse, second, the ultimate goal of creation is the merging of heaven and earth so that God and humanity may dwell together in the same place. That's where this whole story is going. Forgiveness of sins, great stuff, all those good things happening. But ultimately, you read through the end of Revelation, it is that heaven comes down to earth, that God and humanity dwell together. That is a meta goal of the whole story of creation. The dwelling of God is with humans. Actually, that's what Jesus is all about. God, man, together. Jesus himself is a picture of where the story is heading. God and humanity dwelling together. John's theology is rich with these ideas. So accordingly, Genesis, uh, Revelation 21.2, the heavenly city will come down to earth and God will make the, this climactic proclamation. Behold, the dwelling of God is with mankind or with humans. Knowing that the ultimate destination of the Bible story is to bring heaven and earth together, here's how I think Genesis 1, 1 and 2 should have read. Bear with me. Uh, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth, or heaven and land. Now, darkness was on the face of the deep that lay between the heaven and the earth. So God removed the deep, and heaven came down to earth so that God could dwell with humanity. Ideally, a two-verse Bible would have been great. Because that would have, God created heaven and land or earth. And the next thing that should happen, if you look at the whole goal, is we come together. We didn't. For his own inscrutable reasonings. 
In other words, I don't know the mind of God. God chose not to remove the cosmic sea at the beginning of the story. See, if the sea had gone, the story might have, there's no need for ferment. Instead, he made the ferment to hold at bay the threatening waters of the great deep, preventing them from inundating the earth, with the flood being obviously a brief exception. Therefore, given the continuing presence of the deep, through the not just this story, but all through the story of redemption, it's still there. Uh, the construction of the ferment was a necessary step for the protection and preservation of the land and its inhabitants. Nonetheless, Genesis 1 leaves the divine and human dwelling places, heaven and earth, heaven and land, unmerged in separate locations. And on day two, that separation is formalized and concretized when a solid barrier is placed between the two realms. Heaven and land, heaven and earth cannot be merged until both the cosmic sea ceases to exist and the firmament is removed. Events that await the arrival of the one who is himself heaven come down to earth. Interestingly, um, oh, I'll, I'll do it. Um, when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens in the temple? The curtain is split into top to bottom. But what that curtain is, there's a debate as to what the curtain is. That curtain actually is almost certainly a picture of the firmament. It's this blue thing with stars in it. What that tells you is the barrier that separated, the firmament was the curtain between the holy place and the rest of the rest of That barrier, which is a symbol of the firmament, is torn in two. A subtle, brilliant hint that the barrier is gone. This is the, the merging of heaven and earth can now take place. Another interesting thing is that the Hebrew, the Greek word for, for splitting is the word schizo. And in Mark's gospel, when Jesus is baptized, we're told that the heavens were schizo, split open. What that's telling you here is the ministry of this man will be a firmament opening ministry. Because he's op- the, whole, the whole point is he's opening the way for the merging of heaven and earth. So you kind of keep these pictures in mind and I'm allowing them to inform our reading of Genesis 1. Well, can you see where I might go with this? Um, the firmament has... in. Day two, the creation of the world. In day two, that firmament opening work of Christ lies out in the future. The firmament locks heaven and earth in their separate realms and probably that explains why day two does not receive the formula of divine approval. It's not a bad day because the firmament is doing what it's supposed to do, but it's a day that falls short of the ultimate good that will, um, that will mark the completion of, of the new creation. So it's a little bit different from the other days. So that's my attempt to explain uh, why there's sort of silence on that day because we have a barrier between heaven and earth doing its job, but still it needs to be removed for the final goal to be reached. Okay, let me summarise then. Uh, let me try and pull the pieces together and just really just now put in a summary what I've just said. Uh, in the beginning, God created, created a place for himself and for the angels as well a place for himself to dwell, we call that heaven, and a place that would eventually be inhabited by humanity, the earth, or perhaps better, as I suggested, the land. In its initial condition, the land was desolate and uninhabited, tohu and bohu. 
And one of the major goals of God's action in the six days of the creation week was first to make the desolate land fruitful and productive, day three, so that it could be inhabited by humanity whose calling was to be fruitful, multiply and fill the initially vacant, uninhabited land. I also suggested that verse 2 depicted the land as originally covered by a great ocean, the deep, a situation which was reenacted when the flood returned the land to its initial desolate and uninhabited state. Above the deep is a divine realm, with God initially shrouding himself in darkness. The action of the first day of the creation, creation week is set in heaven when God declares, let there be light, and he unveiled the shining brilliance of his glory and that brought light to the waters of the deep there. The action of day two moves down. See, what we're doing here is we're moving down from day one in the heavenly realm, the heavenly light, into the space between heaven and land, into the, into the deep there. On day two, we see that God creates a ferment and on day three, we come to the land. I'll just jump across here to day four. We make the same movement down, not from the upper heavens, but from the lower heavens, where the lights are placed in the lower heavens, then the space between the lower heavens and the land, birds and fish are created, till we finally come to the land itself, where animals and humanity are created. So you see this movement down from heaven down to land, and from the lower heavens down to land in the second movement there. Um, pick up where I was. So uh, the action of day two moves down from heaven into the realm below it, the waters of the deep. And rather than removing the deep, God placed a solid boundary in the middle of its waters. And the goal of this action was to keep the waters of the upper deep aloft so that dry, dry ground could appear. A side result of this action, however, was the creation of a barrier between heaven and earth. And then on day three... Uh, the action moves down to the land. With the waters above the firmament held at bay, God's, God first gathers together the waters of the deep under the firmament to form the world's seas and finally allow the land that he had created in Genesis 1-1 to appear as dry land. As for his second action on day three, God caused the formerly desolate land to become fruitful and in so doing made the still uninhabited land ready to be occupied and filled by the humanity that he would create on day six. That's a summary of my take on Genesis 1, verses 1 to 13. Uh, a little different, but hopefully um, maybe some generate some more questions. Um, let's take another break. Then I just want to do some additional reflections, which will take about five minutes or so, and then we can um, take questions. If I stalled you long enough, maybe there'll be no questions. Okay, um, unless there are questions now, you can save them for later. Take a break now and then we'll come back and I'll finish this off and then we'll take questions. Am I on? Uh, let's see if we can reconvene so we can, I can finish this and then um, you can ask me a few questions and then... Those of us who are yet to vote can go home and vote. <laughs> Simple as that. Uh, in addition to the little handout with the outline there I gave you, I gave you also some, um, a sheet with drawings on it. Uh, these are just different representations of the kind of cosmology uh, way of looking at the world that I'm actually talk talking about here. 
it generates a question. Were they that stupid? <coughs> Meaning, did they not know that the world was round? Did they not know there's not really a cosmic sea above them? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I suspect yeah, they actually had something probably closer to a modern cosmology as well. I think they did know there was not an ocean up there. My point, though, is this is the language that they use when they want to speak about... If you want to speak about the cosmos and you can t you kind of ref describe these metaphysical realities, we kind of do that, you know, when you kind of want to speak about the... the I mean, how often, I was just saying during one of the breaks, how often in sermons do people quote C.S. Lewis and Narnia? Because... In our way of speaking, if we want to speak about other world realities, we have to go through the wardrobe to speak about spiritual realities in our world that are beyond the material universe. I want to say, you know, actually what the Bible has given us here, it's not scientific. Um, it's a way of speaking about the cosmos that allow that it's it's a way which allows them to speak of spiritual realities. Heaven. You can't use material, modern material language to speak about heaven. Even the sea, even the cosmic sea, the deep, even that raises some interesting questions. Is that symbolic of darker forces at work? Uh, could be. That's an interesting one. So I, I'm, this is not a scientific view. This is, a, this is the language they use when they want to speak about the world, the cosmos, in a way that brings in these spiritual realities. A couple of the reflections. Let me just end with these. Um, literal days or literal cosmology. The most important question that Genesis 1 poses for us is not whether we should interpret the days literally, but whether we should interpret its cosmology question, uh, literally. Uh, when people say, well, do you believe that these days are literal? I go, well, do you believe that the cosmology, do you take it literally as well? It's a complex issue. Uh, that may not be even be the best way of posing the question, but it highlights the deeper issue in the question, uh, in the interpretation of Genesis 1, especially with respect to science. Uh, to state the obvious, I understand the cosmology and the cosmogony. Cosmogony is the story of how things, the cosmos was created. I take it to be an ancient, pre-modern, scientific uh, way of speaking about reality. Therefore, if we are to understand the Bible, Genesis 1, are right, we need to, to some degree, divest ourselves of many modern assumptions that we unconsciously bring to the reading of the text, many of them very secular assumptions. But if Genesis is not modern scientific account of world's origins, what is it? I'm tempted to use the word mythological, but that's just a no-no word because what that word means is it's a fiction, didn't happen. No, no, I want to say this is, this is a historical account of creation using categories of thought which are pre-scientific. I've actually sometimes used the word apocalyptic and I'll explain that in a minute uh, to describe the history we're reading here. An apocalypse was a way of writing that reveals realities that are beyond human perception. You get this in Daniel and Revelation where it is as if the, the, the veil is pulled back from the world and we see spiritual realities. We see battles between spiritual forces. That's called the apocalypse. It means unveiling. And I think to some degree that's kind of what you have in Genesis 1. It is a history of the origins of the world with the veil pulled back so we can see God at work, see spiritual realms. As I said, the books of Daniel and Revelation are good examples of this kind of literature because they pull back the veil to, re to reveal places, actors and events that we don't normally have access to. Genesis 1 is an account of creation that gives us similar access to an otherworldly realm, heaven. 
First, it tells us there's a heavenly realm, but it also speaks about the deep, a great cosmic ocean. Um, and this gets really interesting, which might suggest that uh, even before humanity sins, there were dark forces at work in the world. That's a really interesting, complex point. Uh, just read the role that the sea plays in the Bible. Uh, when you see Jesus walking across the water of the Sea of Galilee, when you see him stilling the wa- still the waves of the of the, the Sea of Galilee, he actually rebukes it. That's what you do with demons. When he casts out the demons out of the Gadarene demoniac, they go into the pigs. Where the pigs go, into the sea. There's just an interesting connection. There. I'm not going to run with this one, but mm, yeah, just interesting stuff. Uh, if we try to make the cosmology of Genesis one fit a modern cosmology, we'll need to deny that this chapter describes a cosmic sea that's held aloft by a solid dome because we know that the sky above is not a solid dome and we know that there's no great cosmic ocean out there. Nonetheless, when viewing reality from a theological rather than a purely modern scientific or materialist perspective, we actually need to adopt this ancient cosmology because this cosmology gives us a way of speaking about these heavenly realities. Um, okay, other stuff I'm going to leave here. Uh, another comment here. A heavenly perspective on creation challenges the modern materialist worldview. World Returning to the issue of Genesis 1 and modern science, since this chapter speaks of origins primarily from the perspective of the relationship between the invisible heaven and the visible earth or land, much of what it addresses is simply beyond the realm of science. On the other hand, Genesis 1 operates with categories of thought and a worldview that allow it to speak about unseen realities in a way that modern scientific language and concepts simply can't get at. Therefore, its value lies beyond science, and from the beginning, this chapter gives us a heavenly way of looking at reality. For that reason, the cosmology of Genesis 1 challenges a narrowly materialistic worldview. I don't know if you realise how much we unconsciously, even as good evangelicals, buy into a fundamentally materialist secular worldview. It's, it's, it's the air we breathe. I don't think we realise how much it just affects the way we, we think. Uh, now, what I've been arguing about my interpretation of Genesis 1 was not intended to challenge science. What I am challenging, though, is extreme scientism which is to believe that modern science speaks authoritatively about all reality. Uh, scientism grants to science its... Le- well, my approach, our approach, I think, grants to science its legitimate sphere of operation and, and authority, but it, that is, we assert that there are realities that can only be, only be described using non-scientific, ancient language like what we're seeing today. Uh, this approach tells you that we need to have an apocalyptic worldview uh, that says there's more to the universe than the physical universe. And it's really important for us evangelicals to realise we inhabit a universe that's bigger than our secular world. When we're talking today, we're voting today, and all the crucial issues, but we're not able to discuss, but what about the spiritual realities? That's not part of our vote today, as it were. That's not part of the discussion. Um, but what... What this, this um, cosmology gives us are the, the language and the categories of thought that, can, that, that allow us to describe the realities that science cannot, should not 
seek to describe, which are the otherworldly, spiritual reality, things that are invisible but real. You know, that's just so weird. We believe in stuff that is utterly, completely, fundamentally real, but you can't see them. Uh, that causes people to laugh at us. But that's our world. That's us. Um, another thing, not a faulty cosmology. Just because Genesis 1 reflects an ancient pre-scientific understanding of the cosmos, I don't believe that it teaches an erroneous or faulty cosmology. Um, I, actually, I'll end up... Um, I'll keep going here. Um, to call this ancient cosmology erroneous would assume the superiority of a modern materialist cosmology and fail to recognise that an ancient cosmology like the one we have here allows us to speak about metaphysical realities that modern cosmologies can't get at. One example of the theological superiority of this ancient cosmology is its conception of the location of heaven. I raised this question earlier. If you try to speak about a heavenly realm using modern cosmology, you can't. You have to, at the very best, you have to locate heaven outside the cosmos in some kind of parallel universe. You've shoved heaven outside of reality. But in the ancient cosmology of Genesis 1, while heaven is up above the firmament, it's still part of the same cosmos that the earth inhabits. Do you realize how significant that is? It actually puts the heavenly realm within creation, within what God has created. Um, that reminds us that the spiritual realm is very much part of our cosmos, a fact that we Westerners struggle to integrate into our worldview. Non-Western people understand this a whole lot better than we do. We have been made fundamentally secular. Sometimes I wonder whether we as evangelicals simply offer our non-Christian friends a way of just being better secularists, more successful secularists. Um, I'll press on. Genesis 1 gives us language about... Uh, I'm going to jump over that. Um, finally, I believe that the, this approach to the opening verses of Genesis 1 have a, that I've adopted here provide the foundation for a rich biblical theological trajectory and an edifying gospel application. Uh, for example, I su suggested the omission of this, the approbation formula. God saw that it was good. I suggested that uh, that's actually theologically significant. The firmament is needed to hold back the threatening and waters of the deep, but the divine silence at the end of day two hints that this is not the ultimate goal of God's plan for his creation. The ultimate goal revolves the removal of a sea which will allow heaven and earth to merge so that God will at last be with his people. We see hints of this ultimate goal all through the Bible. What's the tabernacle? What's the temple? That's these first sort of faulting steps towards God and humanity dwelling together, small steps, uh, limited, constricted visions, as it were, of where the story is going. But there's that climax, aiming towards the climax of, it, of this trajectory, ultimately found in Jesus, the one who himself is the merging of heaven and earth. Uh, finally, yep, finally, yep. Uh, we live in a, in a thoroughly secular and materialist society. The sum total of reality is the material universe. Ultimately, and this is worth thinking about, this means that our non-Christian friends inhabit a thin cosmos. We, what we offer in the gospel is a thick cosmology, a world and a world to come in which the invisible 
but real realm of heaven coalesces with the visible physical realm of the universe. Understand the thick and thin distinction. Ours is a rich cosmology which has heavenly spiritual realities as part of it. Um, whether we know it or not, this deeper experience of reality is what we all long for. Even as we seek to satisfy those longings uh, in thin ways, how might this, this way of thinking about the cosmos we live in as being as having a spiritual dimension as well, how might this way of thinking uh, reshape the way we frame the gospel message? I also, I also wonder whether understanding the good news of the gospel in terms of the merging of heaven and earth might also challenge us to reconceive our church practices in a way that allows us to re-emphasize the heavenly, dare I say, mystical dimension of Christian life, of the Christian life. To come to church gathering, and this is a bit controversial, I suppose, in our setting here, to come to a church gathering is in some way to enter a realm where heaven and earth meet. I think we've, we're really good in our circles about the horizontal dimension of the church life, relating to each other, encouraging each other. Have we lost the vertical? It's been very interesting coming back to Australia after many years away and to, to talk the language of coming into church, it's like coming into the presence of God. The goal is the worship of God. I'm not hearing that language too much. I'm actually hearing language that sort of runs counter to it. Um, yes, we live in God's presence Every day, but there is a sense in which when we come together as a people of God, we have come into heaven. We're, not, we're here in Southside, you know, that nice church. But at some level, when you walk in, remember, you've joined the assembly of the saints, the angels, and you've come into the very throne room of God. That just helps you reconceive what's going on as we gather together. Um, to come into a church gathering is in some way to enter a realm where heaven and earth meet. Not that this is the only Christian experience of what I call the coalesced heaven and earth um, that we experience, but finding we need to find ways to emphasize in the corporate context the truth that Christians, well, where are we now? We're seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Think about what that means, that we're in this merged universe. That's where we are. A non-Christian walks into our church and says, well, where are we? We're in this kind of nice big building here in whatever suburb we're in. Oh, in my plains. And we say, well, yeah, we are, but actually, welcome to heaven. What does that mean for what we do on Sundays or any part of our lives? What does that mean for all sorts of things? Welcome to heaven, folks. Gee, that's a bit scary thought. Uh, but... The truth that Christians are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus might have an effect. Might have the effect of um, helping us think differently about what it means to be a Christian, to be inhabitants of this merged world of heaven and earth. When we step back into our secular worlds on Monday, and this some kind of things I'm working through the implications of. In the beginning, God created heaven, and just what does that mean for the way we conceive of where we where we live, what we do, how we live? Okay. There were some random thoughts at the end that went well beyond Genesis 1. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, questions? Ah, good, I've stunned you all into silence. Success. As I said, um, I throw that out to you as a, a line of interpretation. 
um, that you can take or leave. Um, I think there are actually some edifying implications for it as well, though. That's one of the things I, why I like to push it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, what, you, what you're doing is you're taking me into the very parts of, the, of that I didn't want to get to. But no, that's, that's fine. I, I think what that's... Uh, the, what I want to say is when we're in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way through, we're in history. I don't want to put this into mythical world stuff, fiction. No, this is history. Now, two comments. One is, in the ancient world, time before the flood was history, but it was also history of a different character. There was something, they call it heroic time. So I want to take into account that it is history, but certainly when you shift from into the story of Abraham, you feel as though you're in a sort of somewhat different world. Genesis 6, now the sons, basically it looks like the sons of God and the daughters of men intermarrying, that looks like the intermarriage of angels and humans. So what is that? You're in a different world, but it's still history. Comment number one. Comment number two, uh, it is history, but it's not told... It's, what I'm calling it is apocalyptic history. It's history told with the veil pulled back, so we're seeing spiritual realities that are less, perhaps less clear when you get into... Uh, the, the patriarchal narrative. So I, I want to say it's history told in a certain way that's got a certain creativity. It's ancient history telling. So, yeah. But I, I, it's, it's selectively told history. It's creatively told history. It's using ancient categories. But I still want to say it's history. Therefore, for that reason, getting into the topic I don't, didn't want to address, when we get to Adam, I think we have to find a way to affirm his historicity. That's enough on that one. Uh, for a whole lot of reasons. Um, a lot of folks say, well, there's a different genre between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I think, no, you're still, you're still in history. Uh, told in a certain way, but... Yeah, yeah, I think Romans 5 backs us into a corner. That to to, to uh, have uh, Adam dissolve into nothing is theologically create all sorts of problems. Now, uh, no. <laughs> we get in then to the complex questions of, is Adam the first human? That gets interesting because that's an interesting one because that touches the, the interesting question, is Genesis 2 a retelling of Genesis 1? So Adam then would be, it's a retold story of the creation of humanity. Or is Genesis 2 subsequent to Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created all of humans, and then there's a special creation of a particular person, which would then explain why Cain is able to marry all these people, because Adam is simply the special creation, not necessarily the first human, but the human who is the one created, a special human put in the garden, who's given this test on which the destiny of all humanity hangs. Um, so I can affirm the history of Adam, but there's some interesting questions there about the relationship. They're exegetical, they're interpretive questions about the relationship of Genesis 1 and 2, and that's an interesting ongoing debate right now. Um, 
which is one of the reasons why I didn't go down that path. Okay, time's running out. Seven seconds. Ben, over to you. I feel like if you have any questions or anything like that, like, I feel like your brain is apocalyptic. You've given us a look into something much bigger. Um, so I reckon just give it a little bit longer. If you do have any questions or things you've been thinking about in this space, we probably won't get dug back till next year, but... Um, I don't know, we haven't talked about that. Yeah. Um, any final questions or comments or thoughts or things you're wrestling through or thinking about or things you want to throw out there? You can not throw at me, though, but, yeah, denunciations, disagreements. Yeah, I mean, I, what I've given you is, is um, perhaps different and therefore I, I fully expect many of you are going, no, I'm not too sure about that. That's fine. My job here was just to get you thinking. Cool. Uh, I, I'll, I'll hang around, by the way, and chat if anyone wants to ask private questions. Yeah. Well, you said at the start you were wanting to help us think deeply about the Bible, and I think you've done that. So thanks so much for it. If we can thank Doug. Thanks. Um, and, yeah, thanks so much for that last kind of, that little section where you're bringing it in and helping us see Jesus and stuff like that. It's so helpful to think about that. So we're grateful for that. Let me pray. Uh, that we would, yeah, digest this and, and continue to wrestle through this. Thanks. Heavenly Father, thanks us. Thank you. Father, we are so thankful that you see us, you see every single part of us, and yet you know us, you know all of our ways, and yet you 